Greetings, building science enthusiasts, and welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Ultra Air, whole house ventilating dehumidifiers. Here at Positive Energy, we've been working with these dehumidifiers for years on many of our integrated mechanical designs, and we've seen such great results for both the health and comfort of our clients. We even have an Ultra Air dehumidifier in our office, and we absolutely love it. When you're working with an airtight and well-insulated building, you quickly notice the outdoor air infiltration restrictions that occur, which allows pollutants and moisture levels to accumulate inside. So when you think about it, properly controlling that moisture in your home will definitely improve the effectiveness of your air sealing and insulation efforts, and will definitely improve the health and comfort for your client, your family, you. Just imagine being able to run your air conditioner at a higher temperature without feeling uncomfortable, and knowing that this improved comfort is coupled with fresh filtered air. These are just a few of the many benefits of incorporating the Ultra Air dehumidifiers into your home or your project. It really is an easy choice to make. To learn more about the best strategy for controlling moisture in your home, check out ultra-air.com. That's air with an E at the end. And see how a whole house ventilating dehumidifier can work for your home or project. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to construction, design, and architecture. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, hello. Hello and welcome back, everybody. I'm Christoph Irwin with the Building Science Podcast. Very much appreciate you here listening. Today I have a real treat for you. I have a friend and a, uh, an associate with me, a gentleman named John Semelhack. He's with Think Little. He's a building science consultant in Charlottesville, Virginia. And John and I have the uh, honor to get together often at conferences, and I think we've done a workshop or two together. We did a, John, we, we did a um, design charrette in Oklahoma a couple years ago, too. That was fun, except for the smoke. Except for the smoke, yeah, we were in a casino, and that was uh, <laughs> the less fun aspect of it. So, John, actually, uh, since you've already spoken, please go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit to our audience. Maybe your background and what you're doing now, generally. Well, sure. So uh, I started this company uh, back in two, early 2008, uh, just before the uh, the big recession, uh, which for me turned out to be um, no big deal because uh, interest in uh, green building, energy efficiency, and building science has only been on a uh, strong upswing uh, before and since then. Um, so uh, we're a small uh, two-person consulting company uh, in Central Virginia, in Charlottesville. Uh, we uh, work with architects, uh, home builders, multifamily developers, uh, and homeowners and their clients to make better buildings. Uh, so buildings that are uh, more comfortable, use less energy, and are more durable. Excellent. Yeah, and that tempts me to go into the business of building science because uh, to be a small but growing building science firm like you and I are, we're, we're pretty much a pure building science play, right? We're not, like, that I know of, you don't have a government contract or a Department of Energy contract hidden away that's funding you somewhere. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, so no. it's... I mean, that would, take... be, that would be fun. That would be an interesting side diversion, and I... I thought about that because we do like to get into our own little 
kind of self-funded research projects that we do. Oh yeah. Um, you know, we, we are always curious and if we don't know something and can't find data on it from somebody else, we try to go out and measure it. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, kind of grassroots building science and grassroots building science research. And there's not that many of us out here doing it, but there are there are several, so I'm glad to point out what we're doing. So for listeners, again, John's company is Think Little uh, in Virginia, and we are going to start by thinking big today. Uh, the biggest thought I can think of is this... Uh, as a global society, as a, a race of beings living on the planet, you almost might say. I don't know if everyone listening is aware of this, but the global economy is shifting from being powered by fuels to powered by technology. And that the implications of that are huge. And we're going to watch them play out for the rest of our lives. And fuels, I would just want to be clear. I mean, back in early society, we burned wood. And then, for instance, all around London, the forests were wiped out. There was no more wood for building or uh, fuel, so we started using coal. And, of course, when society found out about oil, that's been a huge growth in the economy, actually quite literally fueled by oil. And today we are transitioning to the clean energy economy where the goal is 100% renewable energy. Uh, solar and wind are technologies. They the fuel is the sun. I guess for wind the fuel is it's the sun. Uneven yep. heating of the <laughs> earth. Yeah, uneven heating causes the f- mass of air to flow trillions of tons, like a big river. Um, so yeah, you you and I are in that industry, John. You know, the grid is a machine to power buildings, and to the extent buildings need less power, uh, transforming the grid is a is a more doable goal. What are your thoughts about transforming our grid? Well, yeah, I think long term, uh, or the the shift is happening a lot faster than people realize. I think, um, yeah. But it's happening uh, with the existing electrical grid, and then it, uh, I guess it needs to, or it's starting to happen in transportation, where we're moving transportation to uh, electricity based, um, mostly battery based. Uh, So we're adding vehicles to the grid, essentially. And then um, at some point, more and more of our, uh, what I would call kind of low grade or low temperature thermal loads, like space heating and water heating and things like that, uh, need to be moved onto the grid if we're going to uh, power them with uh, wind and solar, or what I like to think of in terms of the big picture is we're moving from powering our 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 world or our energy services. We're moving from powering them with really really old solar energy to <laughs> to moving to current solar energy. So yeah. we're using fossil fuels, which is still energy that basically came from the sun. Uh, it's just really old. We're, we're powering it on uh, current solar energy, um, wind, solar, and a little bit of uh, a little bit of biomass and some other things, but mostly yeah. on solar. Um, so the kind of um, the goal in terms of people who work in energy efficiency or the or the need is to kind of make room on the electrical grid for 
the other services that we need to electrify. So I think we, I feel like we need to uh, electrify transportation and these low temperature thermal loads uh, and move them onto the grid, uh, ideally without increasing our total generation uh, of electricity. Because if we, if we keep increasing generation, that's just going to slow down the transition uh, to 100% renewable energy. That's right. um, and that's really interesting. Over the last 10 years, we've basically been flat on total uh, kilowatt hours of uh, electrical generation while, this is in the U.S., uh, while adding millions of square feet of buildings and several hundred thousand uh, electric vehicles to the grid. So, um, so something is starting to work. Uh, exactly. And I'm somewhat optimistic on the uh, on the efficiency side, I'm very optimistic on the renewable energy production side, um, mm -hmm. and we need a lot more work on efficiency, transportation, and then moving these um, low temperature thermal loads onto the grid. So, if you're using natural gas or propane to heat your water or heat your house or your commercial building, in the next 50 years, that kind of needs to move to electricity. Absolutely. It probably means heating your heat pumps, in my opinion. I, it's our opinion. I guess I could say it that way. And I just want to be clear for listeners that when you're talking about low-grade uh, thermal energy demand, we just want to be very clear. We're talking about heating your water and heating your house, right? So when you yeah. heat water to shower, it's 120 degrees. That's a very low temperature, and your house maybe 70, 75 degrees. Again, a low temperature as compared to the 3,500 or so degrees that you get when you burn a gas molecule. Um, yeah, gas molecules are precious. They're rare. Um, well, they're not rare per se, but they we're certainly not making them as fast as we're using them. And what we want to use them for are high temperature, high grade processes like manufacturing and materials processing. Um, possibly sending people to other planets, I guess. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, but certainly not to heat water and heat air. You know, in the in the big picture, long term, yeah, using those uh, those things that can create high temperatures uh, to do things like melting metal, uh, mm -hmm. melting glass and rocks. Um, yeah. Those kinds of things can't be done with people. Exactly. So you can imagine a future a future us, you know, future Americans or future people living on the planet saying, ah. Oh, there's no more fuel to melt glass. We have this solution. We can't melt the metal in glass because previous generations heated water to 120 degrees with this fuel. Right. Yeah, so it's a bit of a Charlton Heston-like moment when it comes to the gas range, though. You know, his quote about prying his gun from his cold, dead hand. I don't see people willing to cook on induction cooktops anywhere near uh, the uptake oh, of... Oh, I've had such a good... Thing. I've had well, a... Tell me. I've had a really good track record with custom homes. What is it you say? Uh, I mean, I get heat pump water heaters and I get heat pumps into houses. I don't easily. really say, I mean, I give them my, my spiel, but then I say, come over to my house and try it out because I oh, have one. I need one. At my house. Yeah, so it really, because you can, with an induction cooktop, you can't typically try that out at the, at the appliance store. You can't actually cook on it. So what is your spiel? Uh, before you answer that, I tell you, I had a client just a few days ago um, basically tell me that 
being able to bend over and see the how big the gas flame was was um, you know a metric or an input that was used to cook. How do you get away from that? I I don't know. I don't. I mean, I've been cooking on my induction cooktop since 2008, late 2008. So we've had it for eight years now, more than eight years. Um, and I, I love it. I grew I grew up with gas. I've lived in places with gas cooktops, uh, old school electric coil cooktops, and now induction. And I would go back to induction again and again and again if given the choice. Um, the if you tell me why, yeah. If uh, so, the um, it's I guess a the easiest thing to point out is that it's fast. Uh, the most it delivers heat quickly. You mean yes. So you can heat a pot of water or kettle quickly, more quickly than with gas or standard electric. So you the BTUs have, per hour is faster. BTUs per deliver to the to the vessel. Is faster. Yeah. That's a that's a key distinction. You might have significantly higher BTUs per hour with with gas of the amount of energy that you're burning, but that doesn't mean it's going into the pot. Mm-hmm. Um, so you also have you have a fine fine level of control. You can you can set your induction cooktop to a much much lower heat input level than you can with any gas range that I've experienced. So you can have it on just, you know, just barely warm. You can, so if you need to just keep something warm or if you are cooking some kind of fancy sauce that needs to be at a very finely controlled temperature, you can do that with an induction cooktop. So you have the same level of, you have, in my opinion, you probably have a better, uh, a more finely tuned level of control than you have with uh, gas cooktops that, that I've experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in, the feedback is the knob. You have, like if you have a pot of water boiling, you can turn this knob up and down and just watch the the bubbling respond right away. Is that correct? Right, or, you know, I think with most induction cooktops, it's um, a touchpad. So It's a touchpad. <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, it's a it's it's more like um, you know dealing with a, a modern dishwasher or cell phone or something like that. Most of them are not uh, dials. Oh, interesting. So it's not uh, even an analog control. So you press a button to go from level one to level two or something. Right. Or I think you know mine goes from uh, one to ten with some half steps in between. On the lower end, there are smaller steps. And then as you get into the higher power levels, they are bigger steps. Because you, you don't need um, to go from uh, typically a, a super boil to a medium boil <laughs> in most cooking. Okay. Um, most of the time, boiling is boiling. All right. Well, we jumped certainly jumped a lot of uh, <laughs> levels there from uh, oh, so, I mean, I do tell people, to, yeah, with induction cookouts, I do tell people, you know, the downsides, uh, there's some limitations in terms of the cookware. It does have to be uh, iron-based, so cast iron or, or steel. Um, so there's that. If the power goes out and you don't have backup generator or backup battery, then you're not cooking on your induction stovetop, whereas with gas you can. Uh, and then the you know the induction cooktops have a small 
you know, computer basically living inside them. Uh, and if that, uh, if that can, if that control fails and needs to be replaced, it's a little bit expensive to do that. Um, so that would be like a, you know, $500 replacement if it fails outside of warranty. And cost for the overall cooktop? Well, they, they range from like just over a thousand dollars to uh, probably over $3,000 for, you know, one of the high-end brands. Excellent. Okay, so let's get back up and start working our way back down because we, we kind of jumped from grid level, uh, low low and high grade thermal um, energy demand to induction cooktops, kind of funny. But but what you, I want to get back to when you said you're optimistic on efficiency, but more optimistic on, on production. And on production, you mean, we're talking about this by industry for profit market transition that's occurring with wind and solar and regulation, although that might be shifting for the next few years. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think there's the um, there's just the, the 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 rate of change on the renewable electricity, renewable energy production side has been uh, really really fast, uh, and I'm I'm less optimistic on the. Uh, efficiency side, especially with existing buildings, uh, because of the economics. The reason why the the renewable energy, uh, in terms of wind and solar, is taking off so fast is because their costs have dropped so significantly over yeah. the past ten years, and especially over the past five years, that they are uh, now uh, competing or outcompeting fossil fuels for new production. And we saw over two-thirds of new generation in the U.S. was wind and solar last year, uh, which yeah. is the same as it was in 2015. Uh, mm -hmm. So renewables are beating out fossil fuels. Uh, but in terms of existing buildings, it can be really expensive to take an existing building and dramatically alter it uh, to reduce the, um, the heating and cooling energy use. Uh, and there's a lot of different levels of, of, uh, of resistance to, to doing that. Uh, and so that's, I'm, less, I'm less optimistic, with, uh, especially with existing buildings. Um, and side note, most of what we do is work on new buildings um, because that's where, uh, mostly because that's where the demand for our services is. And the existing buildings paradigm, right? So if existing buildings are going to be harder to to make them energy efficient in how they operate, that to me, it just raises the stakes or increases the sense of urgency I have on my project teams to motivate them to really go with more efficiency. And Right, yeah, because new buildings have to be even better then. <laughs> exactly, we gotta make up for the, it, yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, Yeah, you have to make up for the laggards uh, in, the, in the existing buildings, I guess, or, you know, you're trying to uh, I like to think of, you know, having a building that almost acts uh, like a ghost on the grid. Like it's almost like it's not even there in terms of the big picture grid. Um, I like that idea. Something mm -hmm. that just kind of floats in terms of its energy uh, because it's uh, using so little and ideally uh, is producing uh, some or all of its energy needs on site. Yeah, and I'm, I'm tempted to go back up and talk about the grid, but let's stay here. Let's stay here because yeah. this is really the core of it. This is where the building science is, and this is the building science podcast. So let's 
let's go through a building real quick, you and I, John, if we can. I think we're about oh, 20 minutes in, so maybe another 20, 30 minutes. It should be easy to talk through <laughs> everything <laughs> from foundation to roof and all the systems inside a building, right? That should take 20, 30 minutes. Um, so foundations. Um, what kind of foundations are you seeing on your projects there in Virginia? And, and, and you do work in Pennsylvania as well. Other markets? Um, in Pennsylvania, it's mostly on the uh, multifamily side um, for uh, projects that are going for passive house certification in the uh, affordable housing, low-income tax credit program up there. Uh, those projects are almost entirely slab on grade. That's pretty standard for that kind of building type. In, uh, in Virginia, with the... Um, most of our work is in single-family homes, uh, detached and you know attached townhouses. Those are mostly uh, basements and crawl spaces uh, with a little bit of slab construction. Sometimes slab on grade. Sometimes it's like a, a walkout basement, so you have a half slab on grade. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to the decision on the slabs or you know if it's a half slab when it comes to the decision on whether it's cost effective to do slab edge insulation um how do you approach that or is it simply a code requirement you follow code? Well, we, we have a we have a code requirement so we have a minimum uh r10 uh at the slab edge uh either going you know from the top of the slab going down uh two feet or protecting the slab edge and then turning underneath the slab and coming in for two feet. So that's the, mm -hmm. that's the minimum. Uh, it always is a little tricky to figure out the, uh, the detail of how you, how you handle the foam. Is the foam um, going in between the, uh, a stem wall and a poured slab, or is the foam going uh, vertically on the outside of the stem wall going down to the footer? And if you if you do the latter, how do you protect the slab insulation that is exposed above grade? And so different different uh, permutations uh, mm -hmm. for different kinds of problems. And termite tubes factor into that as well. They do, um, and you know the thinking about how you protect the you know the wood insulation that's. Or sorry, the, the wood, <laughs> typical wood framing that is right. um, above uh, uh, above grade in terms of that transition. Uh, termites are you know an issue in Virginia. Uh, I imagine they're not nearly as bad here as they are in Austin. Uh, in terms of my particular evil. experience, I haven't seen. It seems like our termites, at least locally, are relatively lazy. Um, if stuff isn't wet, they don't go for it. Um, so they, it's it's going up. They'll they'll uh, eat right through anything that's wet. Um, but as soon as they get to dry wood, they stop. Uh, so if if you keep your wood dry, uh, it seems like you're you're relatively safe here. Yeah, yeah. So we actually have carpenter ants that fly here, mm. uh, so it can be it can be a real challenge. So what? A, so you you brought a passive house, and and that's something I bunking myself in the forehead for not having brought up early on in our introduction here. So that's one of the main ways we know each other. We're both uh, 
obvious devotees, if that's... That is, yeah, that's how, that's how we met. Uh, you yeah. were our um, original ResNet liaison. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Back in the day. Yeah. So that's how we first met. Uh, Several yeah, years so ago. I've been, I've been uh, a, I guess as far as the United States goes, uh, an early uh, passive house um, devotee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you did, live in one, correct? Uh, not, not quite. No, we live in Uh-oh. one. We did. We did uh, no, yeah, it's <laughs> you know, I'm not going around telling people I live in a, in a passive house. But we did, um, we did design the house as as close as we could at the time. But, you know, when we designed the house, I was an uh, I was an amateur uh, building scientist, amateur energy modeler. Um, so I, I learned as much as I could uh, at the time, uh, and, uh, and we got pretty close to the standard, but not not quite there. Um, but um, the the house is still uh, lovely, and we recently made a, a couple of improvements uh, to it that uh, have been uh, really great. Your EUI, do you happen to know that number, or your energy bill, or some quantitative way to assess how it's running, how it's performing? Oh, let's see. You, well, six, you don't have to eat. Sorry, how much did you pay for electricity last year? It's all it's all electric, correct? It is all electric. It's a little it's a little convoluted now because we added on a mother-in-law apartment last year. Um, but for just for our side, our EUI is just over four. Awesome. <laughs> if you don't count our solar production, so with our solar production, we are net positive for for our side of the house uh, if you include the mother-in-law apartment then we produce about 80 percent of our energy on a net annual basis that is awesome so just for people listening just to keep that in perspective right so eui is the energy use intensity and it's simply the energy in btus or kilowatt hours but typically oh, sorry, you were doing btus no no sorry i was doing kilowatt hours. oh so it sounded a little better so you're really more like 12 is that right? Um, 12 kBTUs per square foot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, and so the average in the U.S., instead of being John's at 12, the average in the U.S. is typically in the 40 to 50 range. And um, Architecture 2030 at Masria has a challenge that you know takes us from, from that EUI down to target EUIs, and they go as low as four. Um, John, you're at the level of like the 80% targets, the 70 to 80% target. Right, which, you know, realistically is, uh, it's about as low as you can go through efficiency, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and then at that point, you know, there's only so much more you can squeeze out, Um, you know, you can't squeeze much more out of your cooktop or your, uh, I guess we could improve our clothes dryer uh, or our, you know, our refrigerator, there's not much better that we can do, Uh, so at some point you just have to switch over to producing energy. And that, um, you know, the economics of that is, um, is, has changed a lot. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and so that we're always having, we're always revisiting that conversation uh, with new clients and making sure we're on top of that. Uh, and, you know, we have, I, I personally have a bias towards um, reducing energy use rather than producing energy on site. Um, but you have to, you know, meet your clients where you are uh, in terms of that conversation and, and deal with the, the uh, reality of their, of their mm-hmm. budgets. And their yeah. 
And just to expand on the EUI and the Architecture 2030, my understanding is the Architecture 2030 would allow you to uh, factor in on-site power production. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And so you are actually, you know, their 100% targets are trying to get to zero and you're there. So you've made it. Now, when I mentioned that the average EUIs are in the 40 to 50 right now for single-family, multifamily homes, that's just on site. Those numbers go up by a factor of two to three, depending on the gas versus electricity mix, right. uh, if you go to source energy. So yeah, we've got a long way to go. I mean, if buildings that on average, and, and you know, by the way, I, when the projects we work on, newer projects, we're getting the, you know, down as low as in BTUs, kilo BTUs per square foot per year. A good one would probably be 15, and a lot of them are close to 30. Um, and that's with a lot of efficient equipment. They're just large, larger homes, um, but they are, they are really adopters in some sense. You know, they're um, making it more common for high efficiency equipment to be used. But right. back to Fias, back to Fias in Pennsylvania in particular. This low income housing tax credit. Um, tell me a little bit about that. How, how is that changing the the market for low income housing uh, design? I guess or not just design, construction. Well, that's, um, so in, in Pennsylvania, the uh, PHFA, the Pennsylvania Housing Finance uh, Authority, um, they manage the low-income housing uh, tax credit uh, awards that go out to development groups every year. Um, most, of the, most of that uh, project financing is um, competitive, so potential projects submit their applications each year. And the way each state uh, has their own program and they manage it slightly differently, there's a lot of similarities, but many states um, award uh, or offer optional points that developers can check off these boxes. Uh, so if they pledge to make, uh, to keep the rents uh, even lower than certain levels, if they pledge to make these units, these apartments affordable to more of the population, they make their project more competitive on the application. Uh, and these finance authorities realize that if the, uh, the tenants, who mostly pay the energy bills, if they're paying uh, less money for energy costs, that helps their finances uh, quite a bit. Uh, so uh, they have incentivized energy-efficient construction on these applications. So in Pennsylvania, uh, uh, they, added, they, they added a checkbox for uh, Passive House, uh, and they also added a checkbox for Exceeding Energy Star, and they put them at different levels. So you can make your project more competitive by checking the Energy Star box or even more competitive by checking the Passive House box. So many of the developers are opting to check that passive house box, uh, and uh, some of those projects are uh, getting the financing award. So uh, roughly uh, the past two years, about a quarter of the projects that uh, were awarded funding uh, have checked the passive house box, and I've been lucky enough to be a part of the project teams on um, uh, four of those. Uh, one is under construction in Pittsburgh, and three more are just wrapping up uh, their financing packages and are uh, pre-certification with FIAS and will be 
under construction uh, late uh, this spring. Oh, that's so great. I mean, how that PHFA included FIAS would be an exciting story to cover for a different day. Um, it would, and it's really, um, so Tim McDonald in Philadelphia, who's an architect and part of uh, uh, Onion, Fat, Onion Flats, uh, <laughs> developed, design, build uh, team in Philadelphia. He's really been um, the, the key person who's been trying to, who got this implemented in Pennsylvania, uh, who, who really pushed for it. Uh, and he's been trying to spread the word uh, all across the country. Uh, and so there, we have other states now who are putting Passive House on their uh, their applications, and we're starting to see other places where it's um, uh, starting to take hold. So we'll see how it goes over the next several years. I think it's it's really um, it's obviously really critical that these early buildings uh, that we have a good um, you know a good experience for the developers for PHFA for the um uh for the actual energy use and, and so on um so that's something that we're we're really interested in on our projects mm-hmm. and, and as we know from the conferences i mean generally the story is that that it is a positive experience that the cost ad goes down each project because the teams get more familiar with it and what we can't forget is that embedded in this energy paradigm is improved health and comfort as well as building durability. I mean, a, a passive house, a high-performing building is not just one-dimensionally better. Um, it's generally better. It's a generally better Right. Well, we're, we're certainly trying to, on every project, we're trying to positively influence uh, comfort, energy use, health, durability, those kind of, mm-hmm. kind of uh, the four key things that, that we are really looking at on each right. project. All right, well, let's get back now. we got to accelerate even more. Let's get back to building our, our let's say it's a single-family home. So we've got the foundation in. Let's, for simplicity, just say it's a slab on grade. Slab edge insulation, you're putting that in because it's code. You're also running a model, correct? Um, it, Typically, or how does that work for you? It depends. So the interesting, one of the interesting things, in my opinion, with modeling is that the more the more energy modeling you do uh, for particular types of projects in a particular place, the less you need it. I get it. I agree. When you start to settle in on a package of, of uh, building enclosure uh, types, or you have a kind of a palette of uh, building assemblies that you know are going to work, that are uh, kind of optimized for your climate for uh, efficiency uh, and economics are uh, buildable by your local builders uh, and and so on uh, so uh, we don't always do whole house uh, energy models we always we always if we're, uh, many of our projects we do the mechanical system design so we are going to do a heating and cooling load calculation model um, but we might not do a, a whole house energy model, mm-hmm. really, unless... Yeah, uh, I get it. Yeah. I, I, modeling definitely has its place. I mean, highly custom projects, owners with um, really clear goals as far as um, energy independence. And if you have very tight constraints on PV production and you want to go net zero, I mean, there are times where modeling makes sense. But I, I agree with you, generally speaking you can also approach it from the you know 
somewhat what the model will say and you also know where the sweet spot is as far as what the local installer community and supplier community has for you to build with right it's something exactly yeah yeah and so we you know not only have those kind of um uh i guess you might say prescriptive solutions um for the building enclosure but we're at that kind of point with uh, mechanical systems we can you know we can look at a plan and a given building enclosure and window spec and door spec and say with pretty good accuracy oh that's going to be uh you know two slim ducted heat pumps and they'll either be three quarter ton each or they'll be one ton each and we'll do um, one ERV, like 100 CFM ERV. And that's probably what we're going to do on this project. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll double check with our load calculations and our ventilation calculations, but right. um, uh, we can get a you know, pretty good idea in just a few minutes of what uh, generally the mechanical system is going to look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're, we're the same way. We can generally outline the components we'll need, but I think let's not overlook how important it is to run loads and to do uh, oh, I mean, absolutely. proper design on the air distribution system and to, you know, to pick the diffusers carefully and locate them carefully. Right. The, um, the, you know, the selecting the equipment, you know, I guess doing the load calculation and selecting the equipment is the easier part of the design, HVAC design puzzle. Correct. It's integrating it into the framing and into the space and the architectural design. Yeah. And the, and, you know, with the, with the, our preferred um, heat pump systems, you know, we have limited uh, fan power that we're working with. So we have to keep, we have to keep the ductwork quite smooth. We have to keep the pressure drop from our filters and fittings and things like that quite low, uh, while at the same time, you know, having enough throw out of our registers, uh, so we're getting good mixing within the rooms. Uh, so it's um, yeah, it definitely um, it, uh, it takes work to to get from uh, point A to to point D, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that that's like a hidden. Uh, feature in mechanical system design, you know, let's say you've got a client and they've said, okay, I want to do VRF and I understand that these variable capacity systems give me efficient part load, but it doesn't end there. What you were just alluding to, if we're using these low static pressure units, that means much more precision and care goes into air distribution. But a lot of times what people say is, oh, but a high static air handler, you know, is available for that system. So let's just do that. <laughs> well, yeah. suddenly you've got you know less stress on the, but you've got more energy use. Right? Yeah, you're it's, you're you're throwing away all of that energy just because you've decided that you don't want to think about the problem, and mm-hmm. and work through a solution. That's kind of that's my opinion on it. It seems oh, like yeah, you know, to do uh, you know you do a good uh, uh, duct layout and specification and register selection and filter selection. And you can drive your, you know, you can drive your fan power down to uh, a tenth of a watt per CFM. Uh, yep. I don't know if you look at it in that metric, but um, yeah, I do. Um, that's kind of my goal. You know, you know, obviously, it takes a very efficient fan motor to begin with, uh, and then a good duct design. 
but it, and it can go up almost an order of magnitude from there if you're not careful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I could tell you just an anecdotal story. Austin Market, 2008, 2009, I really got into these low static heads. I wanted to use them. And, you know, to my credit, not to my credit, to my installer's credit, I was able to find some that would trust the fact that I could do a distribution design and I could show them that the, it would work. But yeah, many yeah, installers yeah. would say, no, we're not using those, you know, we're, they're the low static units. We refuse to use them because we consider it uh, threatening <laughs> to our business model. Yeah, and that's really, that's where our focus on testing stuff uh, that we design, that's, kind of, that's one of the things that we do. Any mechanical system that we design, we insist on doing the commissioning work. So we uh, set the speed settings on the air handler and we balance the system uh, once the building is finished. Uh, and we won't do a design where we don't do that. Uh, and so that means that we get to see what works and we have real world proof and numbers that we can show to installers uh, and we can say, hey, we've got these, you know, dozens of, you know, low static pressure uh, air handlers uh, moving the right amount, the, the amount of air that we said it was going to at the static pressure that we set, you know, within a you know certain amount of tolerance. Mm -hmm. Of what we said it was going to do, and so now we have we have proof, uh, and that's one of the that's one of the great things about actually measuring stuff. <laughs> Absolutely, engineering and physics works, and, and never <laughs> discount the value of testing your own work. So yeah. let's we're trying to go through several things here. Ventilation, uh, how are you doing ventilation? You mentioned ERVs, separate ducting. Yeah piggybacking on the heating and cooling ducting how are you uh, doing so our our preference is erv for ventilation we um we typically uh get rid of the bath fans do continuous exhaust from the bathroom uh sometimes a little bit of exhaust from the kitchen as well so the exhaust side is all its own independent ductwork. then on the erv supply side uh our our preference is to do standalone ductwork for supply ventilation, but it does add a little bit of cost uh, to do that. So in some cases, we will uh, duct that in to the ducted heat pump system or systems. Uh, often, if we have two slim duct heat pumps, we'll split the ERV supplier and send it 50-50 you know, or so into the two heat pumps. Um, with uh, the with the air handlers that we're typically specifying, uh, those run 24/7. Uh, so even if there's no, even if the compressor is not running, uh, they will run uh, at a very low speed and low fan power, uh, which is great because then we know that the ERV supplier is moving downstream down the supply ductwork and out the registers, rather than uh, short circuiting and coming out the uh, return blow. Return, yeah. Yeah, and it's also great because it's filtering and mixing. Exactly, yeah. So we, you know, the, the systems that we use in that, you know, in the uh, the low, you know, super low power mode, it's about 10 watts uh, to move the air, you know, to keep that um, air handler moving, which is about the same amount of uh, power input that most heat pump systems require just in standby mode. Yeah. Uh, so I don't mind that 10 watts at all. We 
get constant filtration through the MERV 13 filters that we normally specify. What about dehumidification? Um, I guess it depends on the climate zone. Uh, tell me, tell me where your thoughts are yeah, on that. So we're in climate zone four, so we're mixed humid. Uh, so we we definitely have uh, humid summers, uh, and we have you know swing seasons. We typically get a week or two in the spring and a week or two in the fall where it's uh, seventy to seventy-five degrees outside. So there's very little sensible cooling load, mm-hmm. but it's just wet outside either raining or it just rained or it's just about to rain and uh for the most part we kind of we leave that up to the individual clients what they want to do uh we can with in our climate with just uh our variable speed heat pump systems we can handle our moisture load uh 95 percent of the time and keep our relative humidity under 55 percent uh, on those projects, uh, except for those, you know, seven to 10 days in the swing seasons. If the client wants perfect control of the relative humidity indoors, you know, 365 days a year, then we would specify a, uh, a ducted dehumidifier. One other thing that we do look at is, uh, is obviously the, the sensible to latent uh, cooling load ratio. Mm-hmm. For for the particular house, and uh, through experience, we've seen a couple of houses where they've had so much uh, tree cover, for instance, on top of uh, quite low solar heat gain coefficients on the window glazing, that the sensible loads were extremely low, uh, extremely low. Sorry, mm-hmm. and that kind of uh, extends the number of days. Uh, each year where there's just you know effectively zero or near zero sensible cooling load and those are the kinds of houses where we really need a, a supplemental dehumidification system right yeah and it so that that's sort of my um, overarching consideration with dehumidification first of all it's a huge health impact health related impact but second of all as we continue as a society to make building uh, buildings more energy efficient what that really means that's a euphemism to say require less heating and cooling and when you require less cooling you require drying uh, still for for health yeah that's so, one of the interesting mm-hmm. things that i like to um that i like to talk about with people and i do some teaching for fias uh and they're they're um certified passive house uh consultant training program and there's a, I, I definitely think that there's a limit to how low we should be driving the uh, solar heat gain coefficients on our windows. And I think there's a limit to the amount of shading that we should be doing uh, on some of these projects, uh, unless we have supplemental dehumidification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, exactly, the outdoor conditions yeah, for instance, in winter, it's free heating, right? And you want to be careful not to constrain it. Yeah. Um, let's try to keep going through filtration. Uh, when you're managing static and keeping these systems uh, at, at very low static pressures, so very uh, low energy moving through across your filter too, what kind of MERV ratings are you able to get? Right? Yeah, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about over the past couple of years. So we were pretty much using MERV 13 filters uh, across the board. 
we are uh, almost always using um, filter grills. Uh, and the re- two inch, uh, two inch deep filter grills. Um, a couple of reasons for doing that. Uh, number one is that we can uh, filter it before any air moves into the ductwork. So, as long as we, as long as our contractors do a good job of keeping the ducts clean during construction, we can keep the ducts very clean after construction. Uh, so that's nice. And then second is it's a lot easier to control the the surface area of that filter at the filter grill rather than in the duct. So it's easier to do it kind of out at the at the wall or the ceiling. Uh, and that is where you know we size the filter grills to keep the the pressure drop from that MERV 13 filter to a, a very low level, uh, where it's it's almost non-existent in terms of the in terms of the system. That's exciting. So you, you're able to do MERV 13 with the 0.1 watt per CFM. Absolutely, yeah. So right. on, a, um, on a a one ton you know ducted uh, uh, slim ducted heat pump, we would normally spec a 20 by 20 uh, by two inch deep uh, filter grill and MERV 13 filter. And the the other great thing is that it's really cheap to do that. You know, the, the two inch filter grill costs about, you know, $30 wholesale. The, the filters themselves cost about 10 or $11 each when you buy a case at a time. So you can get this installed for about, you can get a MERV 13 filter with extremely low pressure drop installed for about $50. That's uh, exciting. With design, instead of, you know, four or $500 uh, for a MERV 13 four inch media filter with a very high pressure drop uh, with kind of a, a standard um, package system from the from the big guys. Yeah, that's a big moment. That's, a, that's an exciting moment. Let's keep moving though. So testing, uh, I actually don't want to bog down there. I want to go to two different places, but testing, I want to tell, remind everyone, right? That so much work on a house, on a project, multifamily, commercial, anything goes into the design. And that's like working on the recipe for a meal. You really want to taste the food too, right? So you really want to measure your systems. And you know, so that's one aspect of it. You want to like your client doesn't actually live in the design; they live in the house that got built. So you want to measure exactly those air flows and the temperatures and humidities that are coming out in cooling mode and things like that. But for companies like Think Little and Positive Energy, for us to have the opportunity to do design and testing of our own designs, it's a huge positive feedback loop. And I think it's it's one aspect of our industry which is a bit segmented where it would be better if it were more integrated. If, if everyone tested their own designs, I think it would be better. Any quick comments there? Because I have two more t- yeah, no, topics. I really, I really agree. I think, you know, the, 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 the few um, you know, people that I know in our industry who, um, who design some, some really fantastic mechanical systems and install them and test them, they are, um, you know, they're probably the, probably the best people out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that that I would it would be great if that is what everybody did. If every installer um, took that amount of care into uh, put that amount of care into the design, the installation, and then making sure that the system is actually working right in the end. Um, so that's. Um, 
that's kind of the gold standard, I think. And that would kind of, you know, sense that would put me out of business. Um, yeah. <laughs> maybe I wind up going to work for them. Um, but, uh, but in the absence of that, you know, we get to at least work on the design side and then the tail end, the, the um, you know, testing, balancing side, uh, and work closely with the installers to make sure that the installations are, are up to our standards. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, I could see a lot of the faces of the people you're talking about, like the Henry Gifford, Mark Rosenbaum, Gavin and Dan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Are, it's amazing how much research they do in addition to running a, a business. So I have, you know, I was going to talk about lighting, but let's skip lighting. We just talked about <laughs> last episode. So I have two different CAs. Uh, one is controls and automation, and the other one is construction administration. And I think after that, we're at our limit here, John. So with regard to controls, and automation, what are your thoughts on that? And I guess particularly how it affects energy efficiency. So, yeah, that's a really, that's an interesting topic and I'm, I'm open to new ideas about this, but my, my current bias is to lower tech controls mm -hmm. um, with, with heat pump systems, with my heat pump at home, my ERV at home. I set it in the winter and then I leave it alone the entire winter. Uh, the ERV runs at the same speed all the time and I do nothing to it. Summer uh, and winter for the ERV. Summer and winter. The ERV runs the same. I change the temperature setting you know, for the heat pump. I will uh, switch it over to cooling mode uh, in May or you know, maybe earlier this year because the weather's been so crazy. Um, but I'll switch it over to cooling mode and, and adjust the temperature, and then I'll leave it alone. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't. With the kinds of systems that we use, they they seem to, um, from a comfort standpoint and and a, a energy efficiency standpoint, they do better with a kind of set it and forget it uh, mindset. And so there's not um, uh, there's no there's no big benefit to. Uh, setbacks or uh, smartphone controls or things like that. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting because um, just to do a quick plug, you know, we both listen to the Energy Gang and we know that intelligent efficiency or electronic efficiency is it's a big topic, right? And certainly for commercial buildings and uh, manufacturing, uh, it has the potential to save a lot of energy just by... Uh, knowing when you should run that appliance or in the home when you should run your dishwasher when you should run the you know washing machine for your clothes yeah so you mean like in terms of shifting time at shifting, load shifting like, exactly moving out the, the the curve of the of the grid peaks right so mm -hmm. it's almost like what i was getting at is that the the controls and automation piece it bifurcates and there's like you know the ergonomics of controls like how do you and your family interact with your control systems and then there's this invisible controls layer that can occur in the background like you say to your dishwasher start and it knows that okay what he really means is by tomorrow morning he wants clean <laughs> dishes in here yeah and i don't need to start right now i'm going to wait until the signal from my power company switches to a lower tier which is you know it's all part of this evolving paradigm the clean energy economy um so I wholeheartedly support that, and yet I, I'm with you on simple is, is typically better. And that's, I'm sure, most of us based on experience. There are some loads in the house where that's going to be a bigger thing. Like, 
your I don't know your dishwasher load is there is the is the benefit no, of the grid going to be large enough drier maybe or in a low load house you know my my peak um, power input to my heat pump in my house is about a thousand watts um, and that's that's not much in terms of uh, in terms of the grid, so if we shift, you know, if we shift that from one time to another, it's um, it's not it's not helping all that much. Mm-hmm. So I'm just, uh, I'm a little skeptical of the kind of cost benefit of of doing that for certain loads. Now and for certain types of uh, buildings, is that yeah, really what I think you there are. I mean, there are other building types and other um, uh, you know pieces of equipment where there can be huge returns on doing that. Um, and so I think in, I think in low load houses, the, the biggest thing that, that we have done in terms of helping the, you know, the, the future grid manage peaks is just by reducing the loads so significantly. And, you know, once we have reduced the loads by, you know, 75%, 80%, uh, you know, shifting the tiny bit that's left. I don't know if there's going to be that big of a return. Uh, shifting an existing house's loads, you know, that that's probably going to be a much bigger return. Yeah. All right. So the last CA, and then we'll wrap it up here, is construction administration and personally and professionally integrated project delivery. This idea that. Uh, you know, building science consultants, mechanical consultants like you and I, obviously people want value our input up front. But what I'm finding is that it's so important that our input remains on the project after design through construction and through final testing. So it's not like we hand them our design and say, good luck with that. Uh, you are doing support of construction, is that correct? Yeah, so like I said before, especially with the um, mechanical systems, uh, we will not do a mechanical system design uh, unless you know we get to inspect it and test it. So we're looking at the ductwork at uh, Rafian, making sure that it is installed, you know, the way we drew it, you know, with a certain amount of tolerance for transferring uh, something from the page or the screen to three dimensions. But uh, and we're doing a preliminary duct leakage test so that if there are leaks that need to be fixed, they can do it, you know, before drywall is installed. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so it really, um, uh, I think it really is important to have that, uh, to have somebody on the project whose, whose responsibility it is to, uh, to get all things, things done and for certain details to be really watching over those. Uh, because the um, the general contractor has uh, literally a million other things to worry about, mm-hmm. uh, and they you know they don't necessarily have the expertise or the time and attention to be able to um, uh, you know look at the things that we look at. Yes, I agree completely. I mean, right there where you just mentioned that the the project managers, the GCs really smart, hardworking people. And yet when they look at, for instance, uh, air distribution system, you know, a supply plan, they're probably not, they could be looking at one that you and I'd walk in and go, whoa, what the heck happened here, (laughs) right? But it would look like, you know, they wouldn't know what to cue in on. And so we can train them over time. But right now I know another 
and another thing. I'm on a job site and I'm there to look at our duct work and I'll see something on the control layer side or I'll see something, you know, it's completely separate from my scope of work that it's like you really need to pay attention to that right now, right? You've got your rain pants tucked into your rain boots there. It's going to do <laughs> Yeah, something. we see that. We see that every now and then, especially on multifamily projects where yeah. we are we're inspecting insulation or we're doing a preliminary duct leakage test or any number of different things. And then we see a little bit of water where there's not supposed to be any water. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and we go investigate and we try to figure out, you know, where's that water coming from? What, uh, what flashing failure is going on right now? Uh, how bad is it? How long has it been going on? What needs to be done to fix it? And then we go to talk, you know, go talk to the uh, site supervisor and project manager and, uh, you know, make sure they, they understand what's going on. Uh, yeah. So it's often, you know, we're the ones who wind up uh, catching those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I've told clients that it seems like rain during construction is a bad thing, but we really need to rescope and think it's actually a good thing. It pointed out a weakness <laughs> that once the house was done could have been That's much true. bigger. Yeah, now. especially with really severe sideways rain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, so any final thoughts? Any final comments? Oh goodness, we didn't. Yeah, we didn't even get to talk about heat pump water. Well, oh, do we? Let's talk about that for three minutes. <laughs> I actually have a meeting coming up. I need to go to. We have to move the water heating. Uh, you know, and we have to move that load onto the grid, right? We kind of talked about that. That's our. That's my premise. Eventually, all of that water heating has to move onto the grid. And, and so it should be integrated with your heat pump generally, your air, air conditioner and heater. Um, maybe, maybe, yeah. Oh, come on. Uh, there's, yeah, there's pros and cons to doing that. But yeah, that would be that would be pretty cool. There's not. big pros in cooling season. Uh, oh, wait, one of the cons in cooling season would be a larger compressor running just to heat water? Is that what you're saying? Or tell me what you No, you're... no, no. I think the cons is uh, a lot of times when you, uh, like we could integrate our refrigerator too, and, uh, and you know, integrate all of our things where we need to move heat from one place to another. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just easier from a sales and maintenance uh, kind of situation to just have distinct appliances that are just, in a sense, plug and play mm -hmm. uh, on their own rather than integrated. So those, that's mainly the, that's one of the cons that I think of when I think of integrated yeah. mm -hmm. water heaters. But I think there's a lot of, good um, synergies that can happen with using a single uh, outdoor unit to do space conditioning and water heating inside the building. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's an evolution. I mean, right now, the transcritical CO2 heat pump water heaters, um, like Sandin, mm -hmm. that's a really exciting technology. I mean, that's a, a game-changing technology. And yet Mitsubishi and uh, I think other companies are looking at the EcoQt type concept that's in Japan quite common bringing some just standard refrigerant based yeah they they sell those um, thousands of those each year in Japan yeah yeah well that was a good that was a little touch on maybe you and I get together again <laughs> and talk about heat pump water heaters a little more um, I want to thank our audience for listening and thank you John for participating thank you for stuff it's been fun talk to you all next time bye bye